Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for the resurrection season we have just passed through and the reminder that because Jesus lives, we too can live. Father, thank you for these women and their hunger for their for the word of God, and we pray that you will fill them and bless them today. And I pray, Lord, that you will use many here to reach others in our community for the Lord Jesus Christ because he truly is the only one who gives salvation. Now teach us again through the life of this great man of faith, Abraham, for we ask in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Well, Abraham, if you remember, was seen back in Genesis chapter 14 as a man of action. He was a warrior, a soldier who courageously and very confidently went to war against a formidable foe in order to rescue who? Lot, his nephew. And then even after the battle, we saw him as a man of action, dealing very wisely and righteously, both with the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Still a mystery, isn't he? Even after reading your notes, do you know definitely who he was? No, you probably don't, because he is mysterious Melchizedek. He also dealt very wisely with the king of Sodom, named Bera. Well, now in Genesis chapter 15, we move more into the realm of Abraham's thoughts and his emotions as opposed to, you know, his actions. He had just been through a great deal. And now remember, too, he's getting to be a relatively old man, at least in our terms. He'd been through a great deal both in physical warfare against Ketelamer and also in spiritual warfare as he dealt with the temptations of the king of Sodom. So we find that his mind now, after the battle, his mind begins to um, take him down some different avenues of, we don't want to say worry, but some different avenues of concern. He needed, at this point in his life, he needed some divine assurance that those wicked invaders that he had greatly humiliated, that they would not regroup. You know, I'm talking about the, the kings from the east under Ketelamer, that they wouldn't regroup and return in vengeance. And who would that vengeance be aimed at particularly? Little old Abraham and his 318 men. So he needed some assurance from God because he was a little bit fearful. Being somewhat emotionally and physically drained, after the excitement of his battles, he apparently began to not only get a little fearful, but perhaps even a little bit depressed. And loneliness may have had a part in the emotional struggles of Abraham, which God seems to address in uh, chapter 15. Lot, who was the closest to a son that Abraham, to this point in time, had ever had, Lot had once again done what? I mean, it's incredible to think about it, but he had once again left his uncle Abraham to go back into Sodom. And Melchizedek, the righteous priest of the Most High God, disappeared from the scene just as suddenly as he had appeared on the scene. And even Abraham's neighbors, Mamre, Aner, and Eshkol, had probably gone back to their homes in order to enjoy their share of the spoils of warfare. So Abraham was home alone. (laughs) That was a movie. He's home alone. He and Sarah still had no children. And neither of God's promises regarding an heir, you know, a son, or the land that he would inherit the land. Neither one of those promises had even begun to be fulfilled. So 
So time had somehow managed to cause Abraham's confidence about those promises from God back in Genesis chapter 12. Those promises began to fade. Time has does that to us, doesn't it, sometimes? You know, we... We, we get a little, our, our confidence in God's promises will fade if we allow time, especially like, you know, if we're not in the word of God. We have the advantage over Abraham because we can read and reread God's promises. But he didn't have a Bible, so he needed some fresh divine assurance. He needed to hear from God again because at this point in time, it's probably been about eight or ten years since he received those promises about an heir and the land back in Genesis chapter 12. So he needed some divine assurance, and that is exactly what God gives to him in this chapter, Genesis chapter 15. The title for our message is Abraham's Exceeding Great Reward. And we're going to look at four subdivisions as we look at this chapter. In verse 1, we'll discuss a mighty shield. In verses 2 to 5, a multitudinous seed. In verse 6, a very important uh, scripture verse, we'll look at a monumental statement. And then in verses 7 to 21, Lord willing, we have time for all this, we're going to discuss a mysterious ceremony. So let's begin very quickly by looking at Genesis 15.1, just that first verse, a mighty shield. It says, after these things, what things? After what things? Well, after Abraham's battle with Ketelamer, and also after his meeting with the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. So it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. This is a fantastic statement because you won't believe how many firsts we have in this one verse. Words that appear for the very first time in scripture. For the first time we find the phrase, and the word of the Lord came. That's a phrase which is found over 100 times in the Old Testament. Now you know there is nothing in all of creation which can compare to the word of God as it is spoken to man. In fact, the whole purpose of language is so that man can communicate his will and his purposes to man, and so that man, in return, might worship and praise God, you know, through words. And it is, I think it's interesting to notice that the first time the word word appears in the scripture, which is right here, it's the first time we see the word word, that it has to do not with the word of man, but what? With the word of God, the word of the Lord, as he reveals a fantastic truth about himself to his servant Abraham. He says, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, another first in this verse is the word vision. A vision, when it's used in the biblical sense, is a revelation of God to an individual while that individual is awake. He receives a vision from God. It's opposed to God's revelation to a man when he's sleeping. And that's, you know, God will reveal sometimes in the Bible. He'll reveal messages to men while they're sleeping, and that's a dream. So you have visions and dreams. Now, in a vision, it tells us, the Lord came to Abraham, and he said, Fear not, I am thy shield, and I exceeding great reward. And in that one marvelous statement, four more firsts 
appear in the scripture. To begin with, the divinely spoken words of great encouragement, fear not. Those two words appear for the first time in the Bible. And they say, I've never really counted them, but I've heard it said that there are 365 fear nots in the Bible, one for every day of the year. Now, you know, a lot of people can come to you, you know, if you're in a situation and say, fear not. But those words from the lips of man don't really bring the comfort and the peace that they do when those words are spoken from the very lips of God himself. I mean, when they come from God's lips, it makes all the difference in the world because he is truly the only one who can remove the great fears of life. Well, Abraham, as we said, he needed some comfort. He needed some peace at this time in his life because he may not only have been concerned about the possibility of retaliation from his enemies uh, in other lands, you know, over there in the east, but even possibly about an attack from the Canaanites in his own land. I mean, you know, they might not have been too excited about having such a powerful man in their midst. Who knows what he might want to do and start conquering the tribes around, around himself. He didn't, but they didn't know that. So perhaps he also feared some kind of uh, warfare against the Canaanites. And furthermore, as we said, he needed peace regarding the lack of fulfillment about God's promises to him regarding an heir and also regarding the land. And notice that after God said to Abraham, fear not, for the very first time, we find that God called Abram by his name. Abram. You can go back and check out the other chapters. God never called him by name before. And that fact must have also brought peace to Abraham, not only hearing God say, fear not, but also God calling him by name. It was a reminder, you see, that the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that's what Melchizedek had called God, that he knew Abraham by name. So what have you got to worry about if the creator God, the one who possesses all of heaven and all of earth, knows you by name? Does he know you by name? He certainly does. He knows every number in the, every one of the hairs on your head. So if he, if he knows you by name, you have absolutely nothing to be fearful about. You have nothing to worry about. You belong to God, and God will look after that which belongs to him. He will take care of you. Well, another significant first in Genesis 15.1 comes with the words, I am. If you're circling these, you're going to run out of space because almost every word is a first. This is the very first of God's great I am statements which are made in the scripture. And there are many of them. What was the very name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush? And God said, well, who shall I tell him is sending me? He says, I am that I am. I just love the way it is in that movie, The Ten Commandments with Charleston, Charlton Heston. I can hear it right now, this booming voice. I am that I am. Whoa. The Lord Jesus made great claims about himself using um, the, the words I am. He purposely did that so that it was, it was a way of declaring who he is, that he is deity, that he is I am that I am. For example, what did he say? Give me some of them. Somebody, I am, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the, the bread of life, the good shepherd. What did we just celebrate? I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, there's a lot of them. I am the light of the world. 
You know, all of the fear knots in the Bible, however many there are, if there are 365 or another a number, but all of them are inseparably linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief in the great I am who willingly became a man, you know, was born of a man, of a virgin, came through the seed of Abraham in order to die in our place as our sin substitute. He is the solution and the only solution for fear. Without him, man has every single right to be fearful. He is the solution for fear. And he is also the cause for peace. Without him, you can have no peace. You can't have peace with God, and you can't have the peace of God, and you can't have peace with your fellow man. God's I am is sufficiently adequate for all of man's I am not. I I am not. I mean, we could say I am not able to do that. I am not able to have a home Bible study. But God says, I am. Everything we can say I am not, he can say I am. And if he lives in you, his strength is made perfect in your weakness, and you can. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Well, in addition to commanding Abraham to fear not and then tenderly calling him by his name, God said to him, I am thy shield. Here's the the I am statement. I am thy shield and I am thy exceeding great reward. Now we have two more firsts in this verse, and they are the words shield and reward. Referring to himself as Abraham's shield, God was speaking of his personal protection of Abraham. And speaking of himself as Abraham's reward, he was speaking of his personal provision for Abraham. So his protection and his provision. God himself was Abraham's shield. Of course, you know what a shield does. It protects and defends a a person against his enemy. the sword of his enemy, the stones, the rocks, the spears, whatever else would be hurled at him. Now, even though Abraham was surrounded by Canaanites who might be jealous of his power, and even though there was a very bitter and angry army over to the east of the Euphrates, which could possibly attempt a retaliation of vengeance against him, God is promising Abraham that he personally will shield him from all all kinds of attacks, even against those temptation attacks like he had gotten from the king of Sodom to take all the spoil. And this is true for every believer as well. God is also our shield. And he is our defender against whatever might come our way, all those fiery darts of the evil one, uh, against discouragement, against doubt, He is our defender and protector from losing heart in the face of weaknesses and temptations and trials of all kinds. It says in Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. Everything he ever says is pure. And what does he say? He says that he is our shield. It says every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. You're a soldier, and he is your shield. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? Furthermore, God's statement, I am thy exceeding great reward, made it very clear to Abraham that he indeed had done right 
in returning the goods to the people of Sodom and uh, the people as well. You know, he could have kept, because we talked about the fact that the law of, of warfare would have entitled him to keep not only all the spoil of warfare, but all the people. And maybe he got to thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't have returned all that. Maybe this was God's way of making me strong and powerful and I could develop my own city-state and be the king and maybe through this, this is how I will inherit the land. And so maybe there were doubts in his mind that, ooh, maybe I just messed up God's plan. Maybe I should have kept all those people and all that wealth instead of returning them to this wicked person, the king of Sodom. Maybe I should have kept them. Maybe that was God's purpose. But God affirms here by saying, no, I am thy exceeding great reward. He is telling Abraham, you did what was right. The Lord was going to be Abraham's reward. And, of course, he is an exceeding great reward, is he not? I mean, that's putting it mildly. Not only would God see to it that all of Abraham's needs were provided, but he himself was to be Abraham's reward. Now, to have God for his reward would mean that Abraham was to share in all that God has. Does God have a lot? Well, yeah, what did Melchizedek call him? The possessor of all heaven and earth. He, he owns it all. The cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. And so Abraham was going to have all that God has. And in addition, it would include um, all that God is. God's nature. You know, Abraham, just like you and I, if you're truly a born-again believer, we are being conformed into the very image of Christ. And so he would... He would um, have all that God is, God's nature. He would be partaking in um, all the fruit of the Spirit, for example. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All those would be Abraham's. And uh, many of the attributes of God's person are to be ours in Christ. For example, we are to share. We share in God's wisdom. We share in God's holiness. We share in God's power, etc., and also, having God as Abraham's reward in, included most wondrously of all, <clears throat> it included a personal relationship with God himself, both in this life and in the next. So some believers, you know, might be without a lot of things in this life. We don't really seem to have that problem here in the United States of Abundance, but a lot of believers think that they might be without a lot of things in this world. But if they know the Lord as their personal Savior and Lord, and if they have this book in their hands, you know what? They have the greatest things there is, there is in all of life. There are, not, there are not enough riches in all of the Sodoms put together to compare with having God himself as our exceeding great reward. And if you know him, if you have accepted Christ's death on the cross as an atonement, a payment for your sins, and you have invited Christ to come into your heart and life, surrendered your will to him as Lord of your life, then he is your exceeding great reward. And that's all you need. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. I don't need anything other than that. Okay, that's a mighty shield. Let's look at a multitudinous seed. And for this, we'll read verses 2 to 6. And Abram said, Lord God, 
What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord, again, came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell or count the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Well, in hearing God's comforting words about being his shield and his exceeding great reward, Abraham's mind returned really to the main issue which was plaguing him. It really wasn't about, you know, so much Ketelaim uh, are returning in vengeance, and also the Canaanites maybe, you know, getting together to fight against him. The main issue that he was having a problem with was that he yet had no son to enter into all these promises of God. God had told him back in uh, Genesis 12, 2, that he would make of him a great nation. God had told him that he would have descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. Remember, that was in chapter 13, verse 16. And Abraham had believed him. But the years, as I said, eight or ten years now had passed, and he and Sarah were still without a child. And they weren't getting any younger, were they? I mean, they figure right about this time, Abraham is up there somewhere around 85 years old. So what would be the point of all that God had promised him if he was going to go childless, which means that he would die without having a son? The heir of his estate would be this Eliezer of Damascus, who was the leading steward of his house, who had been born in his house, but who was not of his own seed. So Abraham might have wondered if he had somehow or another maybe misunderstood God. How could he become the father of a great nation without a son? How could all the families of the earth be blessed through him by way of the promised seed of the woman, the coming redeemer, if he did not have a son to carry on the messianic line? So this unfulfilled promise regarding an heir was straining his thoughts and his emotions. As you could, you know, put yourself in his shoes, you'd be having a little bit of a difficult time with it too. And we see this by the fact that he mentions this issue twice in in verses 2 and 3. He says essentially the same thing. You know, I I don't have an heir to my estate. It's just this Eliezer. And uh, so twice he talks about this problem of not having an heir. Now the good thing about Abraham's question was that he was not asked God in defiance. He was not shaking his fist in God's face and say, you know, speaking with anger. Why haven't you given me a son? You know, and saying, oh, the only one I have is this Eliezer. He wasn't doing it in that way. In fact, he used a new, here we have another first, a new double or dual name for God in verse 2. The first time we see this name for God in the Bible, and it is in Hebrew, well, in English, it's Lord God, but in Hebrew, it's Adonai Jehovah, or Adonai Yahweh. And Adonai <clears throat> means master. Abraham, what he was doing here was humbly acknowledging God's sovereign position as his master, as his Lord, and as the supreme authority over all of his affairs. He was acknowledging that God, as the creator and sovereign over everything, has the right 
to demand obedience and submission even if Abraham didn't understand everything fully. So we know he wasn't asking defiantly. In fact, the use of the name Adonai Jehovah tells us that he was not questioning God at all in anger. He was asking because he was genuinely confused. And he wanted to know God's answer for this problem. He wanted to grow in his understanding of God's ways so that he could follow God more fully and understand him more deeply. You know, it's never wrong to ask God for enlightenment. Never wrong. That's what he wants most of all, is to give people enlightenment. He wants to give them the truth. And so if we ask for it, That's the greatest thing he wants to do, is to give us further enlightenment. And that's what he did with Abraham. So God spoke to Abraham to reassure him, not to rebuke him. He spoke to him to reassure him. And for the second time in the Bible, we read the words, The word of the Lord came to Abraham. And in his answer, God does two things. First of all, he corrected Abraham by saying, No, your steward, Eliezer, is not going to be your heir. And secondly, he assured him that a son, his heir, would indeed come from his own seed. It would come from his own body. It wouldn't be Lot, you know, for example, and it wouldn't be this steward. His heir would be his own flesh and blood son. And then still, now remember, Abraham all this time is still seeing everything in a vision. And hearing everything through a vision, however that works, I don't know. I've never had a vision. But uh, still through a vision, God took Abraham to a place where he could see the sky. And then he told him, he said, look up, and it was night now, obviously. He said, look up into the heavens and see if you can count all the stars. And if you are able to number them. That's how many your seed shall be. Of course, nobody's able to count all the stars. So he's saying that his, those that would come from his seed, his descendants, would be innumerable. No one would be able to count them. And remember, he had done this before. It's interesting. He had said to look down that time at the dust of the earth and count, see if you could count how, how much dust there is on the earth. And now he's telling him to look up. One, the first thing had to do with the the land, which is why he told him to look down. Then remember he said, as far as you can see, east, north, west, and south, that will be your inheritance. But now he's talking about his heir, the one who would bring into the world the Messiah, you know, the carry on the messianic line, so he's telling him to look up. So it's interesting to compare those two. Our patient, uh, compassionate Lord stooped down to help Abraham in his time of emotional need. He was going through some strain at this point in his life. He was going through a time of darkness, of soul. He didn't understand everything. So God, in his patient compassion, came down to Abraham to give him enlightenment. And that's what he'll do for you and I as well. When we are struggling to understand something, he will come down. He will meet us where we are. And if we ask for wisdom... He will give it to us. He not only assured Abraham that his heir would come from his own body, but he then told him that 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 one heir would become the father of so many that no one could count them except he himself, God. So when the outlook is dark, try the uplook. 
No matter where you are, you can see the stars, can't you? And the darker it is, the, the better you can see the stars. So when you look at the stars, always remember the one who put them there and that he is able. No matter what your circumstance is, he is able to handle it and to get you through it. Okay, now we're going to move on to a monumental statement, and I'm not going to be able to do this justice, so I am really counting on you to make sure you read your notes on this monumental statement, but we'll try to cover it real quickly. Genesis 15, verse 6. It says, And he, that's Abraham, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. That's a very, very important verse, which is repeated. It's actually quoted in the New Testament three different times. In this great verse, the doctrine of justification by faith or salvation by faith, as you may want to call it, is set forth forth for the very first time. The doctrine of salvation by faith. Very first time. Even though we know that men like Adam and Seth, and Enoch, and Noah, and Shem, and other uh, great men that we have already looked at in the scripture. We know that they were certainly saved. They were justified. They're in heaven because of their faith in God's promise regarding, you know, the, the coming Redeemer, the promised seed of the woman. Uh, we know that, but up to this actual verse here in Genesis 15:6, the truth of salvation by faith has not yet been mentioned explicitly in the scripture. This is the first time the way of salvation is put down in black and white. So many Bible scholars and students speak of this as the John 3:16 of the Old Testament. It is indeed a very important verse. Now even though we know that Abraham had already believed God's promises and proved them by his obedience and you know he left his home, he left his uh, family and he went to Canaan, we know he believed God, yet this is the first reference in the Bible of his faith. Now, how do we know that Abraham's faith was placed in Christ? In other words, in the promised seed of the woman, going back to the promise God made to uh, Adam and Eve. You know, that the, the one would come from the woman's seed to crush the head of Satan and he would be the Savior. How do we know that his faith was placed in this coming one? How do we know that God did not declare him righteous Because he simply believed God's promises about being his shield and being his exceeding great reward. Or how do we know that Abraham was not declared righteous? Because he believed God's assuring words about not about having an heir who which would come from his own body. How do we know that he did not simply believe God's words about having descendants as innumerable as the stars of the heavens? You know, it's very important for us to know exactly what it was that Abraham believed because whatever it was, it caused God to declare him righteous. You see how important it is to know that? By the way, in verse 6, we have three more words that appear for the first time in the Bible. I'm not going to talk about them, but they're the words believe, 
Can you believe that we have not yet read the word believe in the Bible? We haven't. Here's the very, I couldn't believe it. So I looked it up in the concordance. And sure enough, this is the first time the word believe occurs in the Bible. Also the first time we see the word counted, which means uh, counted or credited or imputed. First time we find that word in the Bible. And also it's the first time we see the word righteousness. So those are three more firsts. So anyway, I was saying it's very important that we know what Abraham believed because if we can find out what it was specifically that he believed, then we too should believe in the same thing because then God will declare us righteous and we will be saved for all eternity. Now the answer to what Abraham believed is really given to us in Galatians. You don't need to go over there. I'm going to try to get through this real quickly. But we are told in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3 in the book of Galatians that the scripture saw in advance that the Gentiles would be saved, that they would be justified by faith when God announced in advance the gospel to Abraham. And how did he announce that gospel? By saying that all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. So in that promise that was given back in Genesis 12.2, I believe it was, or 12.3. In that promise which was given to Abraham at the very beginning of his pilgrimage of faith, God was promising the spiritual blessing of salvation to people of all nations. He was saying that the promised salvation would come to them, or the promised redeemer would come to them through Abraham. And so that's what the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians is referring to as the gospel which was preached in advance to Abraham. Abraham heard God say, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He understood God was telling him the promised redeemer would come through him. And he believed that. That's what he believed. We know this also uh, from Galatians 3.16, where it tells us that the promises made to Abraham were made to him and his seed. Paul did not say that the promises were made to Abraham and his seeds, speaking of many people, many descendants, but rather to his seed. And that referred to one person in particular, the promised seed of the woman, singular. So in God's um, promises to Abraham, and you can look at them. Look at Genesis 12, 7. Uh, Look at Genesis 13, 15. Look at Genesis 24, 7. God uses this very word singular. He says seed, singular, not plural. So Paul, the apostle Paul, was telling us, that Abraham was alert enough to have picked up on what God was saying. Abraham realized that God was not just making a promise regarding a tremendous number of descendants. You see, Abraham knew that God was speaking about a particular descendant who would bring salvation 
through him, through Abraham, to all of the families, all the nations of the world, and who would be the ultimate source of spiritual blessing. Now, of course, Abraham did not know the name of this one, as we know that his name is Jesus. But nonetheless, he was looking forward in faith to his coming. And that's why the Lord himself said about Abraham, remember when the Lord Jesus was speaking to the scribes and Pharisees? He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So what did Abraham believe? He believed in the promised coming seed of the woman, the promised coming Savior. That is the only way that man has ever been saved. How was Adam saved? By believing the same thing. The Genesis 3.15 promised that the seed of the woman would come one day and crush Satan, defeat death and the grave and, and, uh, and save man. That's what every person who has ever lived has had to believe in. When you believe in that, and I won't get into all of this other stuff, but then your sin is imputed or put on the account of Christ who took all of our sins on the cross, paid the payment for all those sins in full, and then we get counted his righteousness. His righteousness is put onto our account. I mean, can you think of a better exchange, our sins for his righteousness? And we don't have to do a thing except believe. So salvation is not by works. It's not by joining a church. It's not by having parents who were Christians. It's not by coming to a Bible study. It's not by any kind of works that you can do, lest you should boast. No one's going to be able to get to heaven and boast about how they work their way there. Salvation is totally by faith in Christ and what he did for us on the cross. It's so simple that even a child can understand it. So read what else I say about it in the notes, please, but we do need to move on <clears throat> to the mysterious ceremony. And as you can see, <clears throat> we have uh, six sub subdivisions we're going to look at as we look at verses 7 to 21. We're going to talk about the prelude, the preparations, the protection, the predictions, the passing, and the promise. So let's begin by looking at the prelude, verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> and he said, this is Abraham, Lord God, again he uses the title Adonai Jehovah, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it. Oops, I skipped verse 7, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Starting at verse 7. And he, God, said unto Abraham, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And then Abraham asks him, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? <clears throat> Abraham is full of questions in this verse, in this chapter, but God always answers them. Well, in verse 7, the Lord reminds Abraham of a very important truth. He, God, was the one who brought Abraham out of his situation of idolatry and lostness. I mean, he was totally lost, totally pagan, over there in Ur of the Chaldees. It was Adonai Jehovah the God of redemption, the God who sovereignly saved Abraham and established a personal relationship with him. He is the one who brought Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees in order to make a covenant with him. So God is, is telling him to remember where he came from. 
and all that he's been through and what God has done for him so far. And, uh, and God had done a lot. I mean, where would Abraham have been without God pulling him out of the miry clay, setting his feet upon a rock, putting a new song in his heart? Where would we be? You know, it's interesting that God repeatedly reminds Abraham of, I am the one that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, just like when the Israelites are in the wilderness, remember? And even all throughout the Old Testament, God keeps reminding the Israelites, the Jewish people, I am the God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Remember that, you know? Remember what God has done in the past. Because when you remember what he's done in the past, then you remember, oh, well, he can, do, he can handle this too. If he can open the Red Sea and let them walk through on dry land and bring them into safety and kill all the, the Egyptians, then... Is it a big deal for him to provide food for them while they're in the wilderness? You know, if we, th- if we remember, I have to remind myself of this, that I worship and love and serve the God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac and Jacob and the God of Moses. If he could do all those things, can he handle my little bitty problems, which are nothing compared to some of the other things he's handled? Of course he can So he always in the scripture is reminding us of who he is and what he has done. Now the covenant that he made with um, Abraham had, it not only concerned the promised seed, but it also concerned the promised land. Remember back in Genesis 12 verse 7, God had told Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to him and to his descendants. Now even though that land was currently in the hands of 10 pagan tribes, Canaanites, that we'll read about in verses 19, 20, and 21 of this chapter. Yet God had not gone back on his word. God does not just give people promises in order to raise their hopes and then not fulfill them. He doesn't give us all these promises in this precious book just to give us a lot of hope and then disappoint us by not fulfilling those promises. His word will never go void. Those who place their trust in his word will never be ashamed. Never. And he will always, always make good on his promises. You can just trust him. He's proved faithful in everything in the past, and he will prove just as faithful in the future. Yet it seems that Abraham still was a little bit in need here emotionally because he asks for some kind of a sign from the Lord that it truly was his purpose to give him the land. So Abraham, again, I think he just needed some more assurance that he had not somehow misunderstood God's promise with regard to the land. So in verse 8, he says, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it, meaning the land? Now, again, he was not asking in disbelief, but he was requiring some additional assurance. He wanted to know more about God's promise. He desired to have his faith strengthened which is what um, God gave to him now in the ceremony, this mysterious ceremony that followed. What we're going to find in the verses that we read next is um, a solemn ritual, which was known as the cutting of a covenant. God is going to basically put his signature on the covenant that he made with Abraham regarding the land. And to prepare for this mysterious 
cutting of a covenant, God gave Abraham some specific or gave him some instructions. And we'll see that in verse nine. And then Abraham carried out those instructions in verse 10. So let's look at the preparations for this mysterious ceremony. Verses nine and 10. And he, God, said unto him, take me an heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he, Abraham, took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not." Well, Abraham here was told to take five sacrificial animals, animals that they used in offering sacrifices to God, an heifer, a she-goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And I, I imagine that if these instructions were given to you and I today, we would, well, for one thing, it would be very difficult for me to go and round up these things, but secondly, I'd wonder what in the world am I supposed to do with them because it's, it would be very mysterious what to do with these things. But Abraham knew instantly what God uh, was about because according to the custom of his day, he knew that God was going to ratify an agreement. And a covenant. So God, I mean, Abraham knew that he was to take each one of those three animals, you know, the heifer, the she-goat, and the ram, and he was, of course, to slay them, and then cut them in half, and lay half of each one in two rows, about, you know, several feet apart. But the two birds, it says he didn't divide. The turtle dove and the pigeon were too small to cut in half. So he put the turtle dove at the end of one row and the, the, the pigeon at the end of the other row. Now, the practice of making a covenant between two parties then involved both parties. Let's say two men were making an agreement on something. It would involve both of those men walking or passing between the two rows of the slain animals. The very word covenant in Hebrew actually means to cut. I mean, that's what it means, literally. And this, all of this served as a sign. See, that's what Abraham wanted, was a sign that God truly was going to give him the land. So it served as a sign that both parties were bound by the terms of the contract that they were making. And the implication is that if one of those parties broke the promise, broke the covenant, then the substitutionary death of those slain animals would no longer be valid, and that person himself or his cattle or his flocks would be subject to death. So it's a pretty strong uh, thing when you walked through those two rows of slain animals that you were going to keep your promise. Otherwise, you yourself would have to die or your, your flocks or your cattle would die. But what's interesting is that after Abraham did all this, you know, cut the animal, got the animals, cut the animals, and laid them out in rows, um, God did not then instruct him to walk between the two rows. In fact, Abraham apparently waited and waited to hear a further word from God, but nothing happened. There was a delay. And during that delay, Abraham had to be very busy fighting off birds of prey. 
because naturally they were drawn by the carcasses and the blood lying there and they would swoop down and try to um, eat the animals while Abraham was waiting for God to tell him what to do next. So let's look at Abraham had to protect his animals, his slain animals. So let's look at the protection in verse 11. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. We find through Abraham's experience in in the next several verses that obedience to God is never easy. Abraham not only experienced a delay in that God did not immediately respond to his obedience. You know, he went out and did exactly what God told him to do. But God didn't immediately respond. There was a delay. Uh, So he not only encountered that, but now he encounters opposition from these birds of prey, which attempt to sweep down and devour the carcasses of the animals. So Abraham found it necessary to stay alert. He couldn't just take a snooze while he was waiting for God to speak to him again. He had to stay alert and he had to continuously drive off the devourers so that he could preserve the carcasses for the ratification of the covenant. Now, there are two lessons that we learn from Abraham's encounter with delay and with devourers. It's a hard word to say. One is a practical lesson, and the other one is a prophetic lesson. Now, on the practical side, we learn that, as I just mentioned, our obedience to God is not always instantly rewarded. Oftentimes, there is a delay before we hear from God and have our obedience blessed. Have you ever noticed that? There's not always instant blessing following obedience. And during that time, after we've obeyed God and we haven't yet received a blessing, during that time, what should we do? We should simply keep on being obedient and waiting patiently and keeping watch. Why? Because just as was true with the predatory birds, Abraham had to fight off um, He had to keep fighting them off because in our lives, too, many things, we could call them birds of prey. And oftentimes, you know, Satan's emissaries in the scripture are portrayed as uh, devouring birds or birds of prey. So many things will attempt to come in our lives to take away, you know, to distract us, to take away our time, to take away our focus to take away our abilities, to take away our energy so that our service to the Lord is hindered. I mean, I see this all the time, how Christians can get so off track because the birds of prey will come and distract them and they'll be spending all their time and energy on other things, things that do not count for eternity. So we need, in those times of delay... We need to be alert, and we need to be driving away these emissaries of Satan who will try to distract us. We need to learn to drive them away and keep our priorities focused where they should be. Well, so that's practically. Now, prophetically, the birds of prey represent the nations which over the many years have attempted to devour Israel and the Jewish people before God could fulfill his covenant with her, with Israel completely. You know, many attempts 
in Israel's long history have been made to exterminate the Jewish people and therefore prevent God from keeping his covenant with her, which was initially made through who? Abraham. So he's really getting a prophecy here in this. As a nation, you see, Israel has not yet been blessed by the promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from Abraham. Why has Israel not yet been blessed by the promised seed of the woman? Well, the reason is because as a nation, Israel has not yet believed in or acknowledged Christ as her Messiah, her Savior. And this will not occur. Israel will not believe and therefore have his righteousness imputed to her. She will not believe as a nation until when? Until the time of his return at his second coming. And neither, therefore, will she possess all the land which was promised to her through Abraham until the time of the Lord's return. So in the meantime, what does Satan keep on doing? Well, he keeps on sending all kinds of birds of prey, devourers, to attempt to eliminate both the Jews and Israel before God's promise is completed. So we have a prophecy here, a very beautiful one in this, this uh, picture of what happened with Abraham. And it continues. It continues in uh, the next verses that we read, verses 12 to 16. So let's look at some more predictions, starting at verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them four hundred years and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterwards shall they come out with great substance and thou now he's talking to Abraham individually thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, back into the land of Canaan, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. When the sun went down, we are told that Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And in that sleep he felt this prolonged sense of horror and gloom. Now that profound time of great darkness was a prophetic prelude to the divine revelation which God gave to him then in verses 13 to 16. God told him in verse 13, if you want to make little notes here, that his descendants, who would be Abraham's descendants? Israel. That his descendants would suffer affliction as strangers in another land. And how long would they suffer? 400 years. Did that come to pass? Yes, it did. Because Israel suffered as strangers in the land of Egypt for a period of 400 years. Now you might say, well, Catherine, it says in Exodus 12:40 that they lived in Egypt for 430 years. 
Yes, they did live in Egypt for 430 years, but it wasn't until the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died that they began to suffer affliction. They suffered affliction for 400 years. So God's word came to pass exactly as he had predicted here in Genesis. Now, verse 14 says that God makes it very clear that he was going to judge that nation which had been Israel's oppressor. And did this come to pass? Yes, it did. You saw the Ten Commandments that came to pass on those ten plagues on Egypt. It also predicts in verse 14 that he would bring them, Israel, Abraham's descendants, out from bondage. And when they came out from bondage, they would be uh, with great substance. Just like when Abraham went down into Egypt, remember? He was a picture of what would happen with Israel. When he went into Egypt, didn't he come out with great substance? Well, when Israel came out of Egypt, I mean, those Egyptians were so glad to get rid of them that, remember, they started giving them all their gold and their silver and said, get out of here. So they did indeed leave with a lot of wealth. And then God further told Abraham while he was yet in this deep, dark sleep that he would go to his fathers in peace and also at a great old age. And we know in um, Genesis 25, verses 7 to 8, that when Abraham died, it was a good old age. He was 175 years old. Then in verse 16, God told Abraham that his descendants would come out from their bondage. He sort of repeats things here, that they would come out from their bondage as afflicted strangers in a foreign land, and they would do so after four generations. So not only did he tell them that they would suffer for 400 years, but it would be a matter of four generations. Well, when you look in the rest of the Bible, you find out that it was exactly four generations. We have Levi, who was the son of Jacob. Jacob was the one who went in there with his sons. Joseph was already in there preparing. He had already been sent ahead. But Levi was the first son, first generation that went in. And then we had his son, Kohath. And then there was his son, Amran. And then there was his son, Moses and also Aaron. They were brothers. So there was exactly four generations before they then left the land of Egypt to come back into the land of Canaan. So Abraham was learning that his seed would have to pass through great darkness and affliction. That's why God put him in this deep sleep where he felt this horror and gloom because he was actually feeling what his people, his descendants would feel as they went through time of, a time of great darkness and affliction and suffering before the inheritance would be theirs. They would have to pass through the furnace before they could ever enter into the land that God had prepared for them, you know, the land of milk and honey. So this was not only true for Israel in her affliction in Egypt, but it would be true for her in her future history as well, because we know that Israel has definitely gone through a lot of time of gloom and doom and through a lot of uh, furnaces during her many years of history before she will finally inherit the land once and all for, for good. Now, many Bible commentators, I don't have the time to develop this, but maybe you can in your own thought processes think about this, but many Bible commentators believe that Calvary, what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary, is also very mysteriously foreshadowed in this prophetic experience of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 15 in some deep 
and mysterious way the selection of the animals. If you study the exact animals that were selected, you know, the, the ram and the heifer and the she-goat and the turtle dove and the pigeon, they all picture Christ in different ways. And you read about, of course, the shedding of their blood. And notice three times we have the reference to their ages being three years old, three years old, three years old, three years old. How long did the Lord Jesus Christ serve? I mean, how long was his ministry? Three years. How old was he when he died? Thirty-three. And also look at the Lord's exact words in verse 9. The Lord God said unto Abraham, Take me. That, too, is a a mysterious way of, of referring to things. Take me. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, he gave himself as the sacrifice. And also the references to the horror of great darkness, as well as the ominous presence of the predatory fowl of the air. All of these things serve to work together to give us a picture of that which transpired while Jesus hung on the cross. So you develop that on your own um, over the week. Let's look now at the passing. Uh, Verse 17, And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Well, the scene grew even darker when God himself finally, while Abraham was yet in a deep sleep, God himself passed through those pieces of the severed animals and the two birds. So what, what was he saying? He was saying that this was an unconditional promise. The covenant promise that guaranteed Abraham and his descendants the land was totally and solely dependent on God. God keeping his word. Abraham had nothing to do with it. He was a passive recipient. Will the land one day be given to Israel? Yes. Does it have anything to do with what Israel will do? Nothing whatsoever. She can be as bad as she wants to be. God will still, because he keeps his word, this was an unconditional promise, one day she will inherit the land that he promised her. So he passed through the rows, and it says, it describes God as a a smoking furnace. Again, you can read this in your notes, but that speaks uh, symbolically of the fact that uh, that he is judged, that speaks of judgment. He goes through as a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, and that is sort of picturing the dual nature of God, that he not only is light and truth, you know, he's our illuminator, but he is also man's judge, depending on whether you believe in him or you don't believe in him. You know, you either get illumination or you get judgment. Smoke and and the furnace speak of judgment. So, again, I'll let you develop that. Let's look real quickly at the promise, verses 18 to 21. It says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cademanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Here he is verbally giving Abraham the boundaries of the land that he promised to him. And that boundary extended all the way from the river of Egypt, which would probably be the Nile River, all the way to the Euphrates River. That covers some 300,000 square miles of land. 
Most of that land today is occupied by Arabs. But all of this land was promised to Israel. And she doesn't have it. She might have possessed most of it during a short period of time under the reign of King Solomon. But basically she has not yet inherited it. But she will in the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 19 to 21, ten tribes uh, which occupied the land of Canaan, um, which God had promised to Abraham, are listed for us. And basically God was saying, all those tribes that occupy the land now, don't worry about them. I am the one who will give you the land despite who lives there. So Abraham must have woken up from his deep sleep, this vision that he had. It was a vision while he was awake, and then it kind of went into a dream sort of a thing. But he must have awoken from it with a far greater realization of how very, very big his God is. He was not only his shield, who had victoriously led him against Ketelamer and the other kings of the east, but he was such a powerful shield that he would even defend him against all the tribes of Canaan. Those ten tribes, they were no problem for God at all. That which he had promised to Abraham, he would fulfill. So there was no need whatsoever for Abraham to fear an enemy, any enemy, when God himself was his protector and his defender. And neither was there any reason for Abraham to have been concerned about having refused the offer of battle spoils from king, the king of Sodom. Because God himself was his exceeding great reward. And you just can't get any better than that. Nor was there any reason whatsoever for Abraham to be concerned about God's promises regarding either an heir, one who would come from his own body, or his inheritance, because God would be faithful to that which he had spoken, that which he had promised. And furthermore, through the very solemn and mysterious ceremony of the cutting of the covenant, God had placed, so to speak, his signature unconditionally on those promises and therefore make no mistake about it. I don't care what's going on in the world today and who says what about who owns the land over there. Make no mistake about it. God has promised that land to Israel and one day she will own all of it when the Lord Jesus comes. Thank you for your patience. I know it's a little bit over time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what have we learned this morning? Well, I, learn, I hope that we have learned that the way to overcome fears and times of emotional darkness and times of discouragement and even times of doubt in our lives, which we all, of course, encounter, the way to overcome them is to hear and to believe your word. This is as simple as that to believe in you, believe in your word. Your promise is that you will give us joint airship with your son and that you will one day give us the real promised land of heaven, Beulah land. Mm, what a wonderful promise. What a great hope to look forward to. And these great promises and so many you have given to us in Scripture, they alone should help to erase all of our fears and all of our disappointments. Because whatever may happen, nothing, nothing can take away the fact that we will live forever with Adonai, Jehovah, in your perfect heaven.
Every word from you is indeed pure. You are a shield unto all that put their trust in you. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.